This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Okay, welcome back. Leadership in Action on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For new listeners and for our Sirius XM subscribers, I'm your host, Jeff Klein, Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program. I'm joined here in the studio by my colleague, Ann Greenhall. Um, we're happy now to welcome our next guest to the program. He's Scott Kelly, retired astronaut and author of the book Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. Scott, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Great right. to be here. It's a real pleasure to have you here. And if I can, I'd like to um, just say a couple words about you before we get our conversations going. Um, Scott is a former military fighter pilot and test pilot, an engineer, a retired astronaut, and a retired U.S. Navy captain. Uh, veteran of four space flights, uh, Scott commanded the International Space Station, the ISS, on three expeditions and was a member of the year-long mission uh, to the International Space Station. In October 2015, uh, Scott set the record for the total accumulated number of days spent in space, the single longest space mission by an American astronaut. Wow. Right? It's humbling. That's, pr that's pretty good. <laughs> that's very impressive, yes. So, Scott, we're, we're really happy yes. to have you here. Um, all kinds of questions. And, and um, I think maybe to get started... Rather than ask about some of the things that we, we just talked about, um, I think I'd like to ask you to kind of go back in time to Scott mm -hmm. Kelly as a, uh, as a teenager and, and say, at that point in your life, did, did you think you'd become an astronaut? Did you have records like this in mind? Um, <laughs> you know, what did you think you'd be when you grew up at that age? Well, I pretty much knew I couldn't become an astronaut, and that's why I think <laughs> my story is uh, – you know, kind of resonates with people sure. that, um, you know, didn't, uh, you know, weren't the greatest students, weren't uh, particularly motivated, mm -hmm. um, you know, didn't have goals. And uh, I, you know, was this kid that couldn't do his homework or study or pay attention. And I know that's kind of hard to believe for, you know, someone who became an astronaut, but it's absolutely the case. I was interested, um, I was a volunteer on a our local ambulance um, unit, and I was an EMT when I was in high school. I spent more time doing that than I did going to class, I think. So I had this fantasy that maybe I could become a medical doctor, but that didn't uh, align with my academic abilities. Mm. And uh, I went to college. Mm -hmm. I actually went to the wrong college. <laughs> like Which I, one? Well, I I thought I was going to the University of Maryland in College Park, but... I applied to another university in Maryland and showed up there almost by accident. That was the ability of my power to concentrate <laughs> and pay attention. And I was just struggling. Actually, it was pretty much impossible for me to pay attention when I was a kid and do my homework. I think if I was, uh, you know, a kid today, I'd be the, you know, kid with ADD or mm -hmm. ADHD. Mm -hmm. But then there was no, right. there was no help for that, you know. Right. And I was struggling my first year in school and basically not going to class very much. And then one day I just kind of stumbled into the bookstore to buy, like, gum or something, not a book. 
<laughs> but the gum was located inside the book? Or well, there was what a, happened? I was walking in there, and I saw this book on the shelf, and it had this like red, white, and blue cover and this really cool title, and it just made me pick it up. Right. Wasn't a you know much of a reader at the time, and looked at the back, and then started paging through it. I'm like, I'm going to invest my gum money in this book, <laughs> and I uh, bought it, and I went back to my dorm room, and uh, it was just fascinated hmm. by the stories of the fighter pilots and test pilots that became the original yeah. Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo astronauts. And the book was The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. Oh, right. sure, that's a great book. Yeah, I've read that too. And mm-hmm. I, I think, but partly, you know what. Uh, it was a couple of things that got my attention about it. Certainly, the the excitement of um, you know what those guys did, uh, but also the way Tom wrote it in this very mm-hmm. like, creative nonfiction style. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. it wasn't perhaps if it wasn't for that, maybe I would have never even you know got sucked into it. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I did, and uh, you know I thought you know if I could just change one thing about myself and pay attention and study, I thought I had things in common with the the guys in the book i felt like personality wise mm-hmm. perhaps or other things that um but that one thing was you know some of these guys went to princeton and you know the military academies mm-hmm. and were academically academic achievers and i wasn't but i thought you know if i could change that mm-hmm. maybe i could become a pilot in the navy maybe a test pilot and a fighter pilot and i was 18 when i read the book the right stuff, and 18 years later, almost to the day, I flew wow. in space for the first time. Wow. So <laughs> That's incredible. Well, that's an incredible story. So what I'm hearing you say is that that book changed your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Without it, I think, uh, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Wow. So did you then become a good student after reading that book? Took a while. Okay. Um, it's you not know, just a switch, right? <laughs> no. It's just flip it on. It'd be good if there was a switch. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to flip it off sometimes yeah. too, but anyway. <laughs> but uh, no, it, it was. Uh, it took a little while. Uh, kind of a brute force method at okay. first. Some, you know, it's interesting when I was a, when I was like in the. I think my brother and I were probably in the eighth grade. You know, getting ready to go into high school, maybe ninth grade, junior high in New Jersey is mm-hmm. the ninth grade. And our dad sat us down. And he said, "Okay, you guys, you're gonna." get some kind of vocational education because you're like you're horrible students <laughs> both of us and my brother thought well i don't i want to go to college and he immediately started getting straight a's me on the other hand had no <laughs> recollection of this whole conversation <laughs> because there was probably a squirrel running outside the window and I was like, squirrel. <laughs> so he he became a good student and went to um the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, Kings oh, Point, great. which is you know it's a pretty uh, competitive school to get into because mm-hmm. for one it's free. And did you have Merchant Marine I in did. your family? Yeah, my grandfather was a captain, and well, he was in the U.S. Merchant Marine during World War II, and then uh, he be, he was a New York fireboat mm-hmm. captain, which okay. was cool. I went on a boat when I was a kid, yeah. so right. I felt yeah. like a little bit of connection. We spent a lot of time at the uh, Jersey Shore. My father always had these broken down boats. Um, and your brother was a twin brother. Identical twin. Identical twin. Yeah. But with some, so, you know, I got inspired by this book, and then eventually I went, I couldn't get into the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. They brushed me off, and 
But I went to this other school that, for me, was really a, a perfect fit, with, which was a state university, New York Maritime College, because oh. it had this uh, it had an Navy ROTC, which I needed a path to commissioning, and it had uh, a military structure, which I felt like I also needed. And then I was there my first um, – I was there for a few months, and I think it was uh, probably around Columbus Day maybe, and I asked my brother if he wanted to go to uh, – down to Rutgers to go to a frat party. High school friends were having this frat party. And he said, nah, he had a test to study for. <laughs> and then he says, don't you have like a calculus test? You, you should have like a fir- your first test, right? And I was like, yeah, but I got, you know, it's on Thursday. I can just study in you know, the first part of the week. And he, he just like read the riot act to me and said, <laughs> you know, if you really want to turn your act around, right. you know, you need to stay in your room and know how to do every single problem in every chapter that that test is on. Over, do them over and over again. And I was very much on the fence about listening to him, especially when it's your twin brother, you know, <laughs> giving you a hard time. We won't let him hear this recording. Yeah, right. yeah he's heard it. Okay. I think he read it in my – well, actually, he probably didn't read my book. But I'm sure he's, he's heard it, but uh, – I was on the fence, and I listened to him and, uh, you know, spent the next, you know, week or, you know, five days and took that test, and I got 100 on a calculus test. And this was a kid that, you know, I don't know, I probably got a C in algebra in high school and just quit math at that point. And then it was – then I was kind of on this Mm -hmm. path to, um, you know, being in the Navy and kept, you know, building upon – my accomplishments, and here we are. Did you enter into the Navy after you finished Maritime College? Yeah, right away. Right so, away. So pretty soon, I as as soon as I figured out how to, you know, study and pay attention, I started doing better. Went mm-hmm. over to the Navy ROTC unit. They looked at my first semester grades, and they were like, they were impressed. Um, uh, and it was easier to get a scholarship there because it was cheaper. I think. Mm-hmm for the Navy, so mm-hmm. they probably gave it me a scholarship maybe easier than you would if I went here, for instance, and uh, and then graduated and went down to Pensacola, Florida, to uh, learn how to fly airplanes. Wasn't particularly good at it at first. <laughs> that sounds like something that would be risky not to be particularly good at that at first. Yeah, you have an instructor with you. So. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what what's the moment where you realize, okay, this is, you know, another, I'm sensing a bit of a pattern here, but this is another skill that, that I can master. Yeah, you know, and I'll steal a phrase my brother says that I think is very, you know, appropriate. And he says, you know, how, how good you are when you start something right. has no reflection on how good you can become, you know, Absolutely. with just hard work and, and preparation um, never giving up, um, and I kind of embrace that. And, you know, then he makes a joke, and he goes, you know, he said, he says, you know, the, the guys that did really well in flight school in the beginning didn't become astronauts. And he right. says he knows that because he sees them sitting in the front of Southwest Airlines. <laughs> Very good. It's just a joke. <laughs> now, my father-in-law was a Navy pilot who flew in um, the Korean War, and he says he was always very impressed by the quality of training to become a pilot. And that quality of training gave him confidence that he could he could do it. 
Did you feel that way? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, the U.S. military takes guys that, like me, that had never flown an airplane before, and within a year you're landing on an aircraft carrier. Yeah. Yeah. And in some ways they kind of uh, like the guys that don't have any experience because they don't have any bad habits. Mm-hmm. They can okay. kind of just train them right from the ground up. Yeah. And I have to say that thought of landing on an aircraft carrier <laughs> is just unbelievable. And again, I'm thinking of the passage, I think it was in Tom Wolfe's book, where he describes the aircraft carrier as a postage stamp out at sea. <laughs> and here you are coming in at incredible speeds and having to hit that yeah. exactly <laughs> accurately or else. And you only get, you know, how many tries? You, you have to. Yeah, eventually you might run out of gas. Or, <laughs> you know, I've also heard it described as, um, you know, being in a being on a motorcycle and driving through a doorway in a dark room at <laughs> sixty miles an hour. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, it is. Uh, there is. I have never been more terrified in my life than landing on a ship at night, and I would say. There, when it's dark, especially when there's no moon. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Half the time, it was just really downright scary. So much so that when you eventually would get on on board the ship, your leg, you know, it was, it was always one of my legs right. would be shaking from the adrenaline. Oh. And interestingly enough, <laughs> we, um, we used to have these meetings in the astronaut office about landing, and all the pilots and commanders would get together, and we'd talk about the, the, <laughs> our landings. And one of the Air Force guys one time was saying how when he eventually came to a stop in the space shuttle, the commander of the uh, space shuttle, he came to a stop, his legs were shaking, and he didn't know why. And all the Navy guys were like, well, you know, of course, it, you know, it's a, it's adrenaline. adrenaline. I mean, we, we've we all experienced it. But the Air Force guys get to land on that long runway. Uh. So that's, for them, that's, the, the, that's just the end of the flight. For the Navy guys, it's something that guys would dread in some cases more than, you know, when they were flying in combat. Right. The whole time, you know, they're, I've never flown in combat. My brother has. You, you know, you might be dropping bombs or, mm-hmm. you know, fighting another airplane, um, you know, depending on what, when you when you were doing that. And in the back of your mind, you're always thinking, oh, I got to go land on that ship at night. <laughs> oh, boy. You're listening to Leadership in Action. I'm Jeff Klein here with Ann Greenhall. And our guest this hour is Scott Kelly, author of the book Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. First military military mm-hmm. pilot. Um, tell us about then the decision to become a, a test pilot. Is that a conscious decision that you're making with astronaut in mind? Um, not really. Um, I knew it was um, it was kind of, it was a requirement, okay. but for me, it was more that it was the next level of challenging flying um, that you know involved engineering too. It wasn't mm-hmm. just about flying the airplane; it was about uh, you know, engineering discovery, scientific discovery in some cases, you know, testing a new system, the flying qualities, the performance mm-hmm. of an airplane. So my goal was to do that, and maybe that would, you know, help me become an astronaut someday. I really didn't think I would actually wind up here, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I didn't, I would continue in the Navy. And um, a lot of the guys that are commanders of aircraft carriers mm-hmm. are former test pilots because, oh. you know, it takes a certain – 
engineering and academic background to get into test pilot school, which also makes it attractive for you being the commander of the aircraft, nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. So a lot of those guys have that background, too. So that was that was also my, like, backup plan. Mm-hmm. And a- as a test pilot, do you, are you in a dialogue with the, you know, the, the makers of that particular aircraft and flying it multiple times, seeing... We made this adjustment. How does it fly now? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's uh, you know it's a collaboration, and uh, in some ways, it's a collaboration like you would have at NASA flying the space shuttle, or even you know somewhat related to the space station. That you have this mission control, you have a flight director, mm-hmm. you're working with a bunch of engineers versus being in a in a fighter squadron where you know it's mostly just about you know, the the people yeah. in the squadron that yeah. are maintaining the airplanes and flying them and, and you know, executing the mission. Mm-hmm. It's much more of a academic uh, exercise. So what kind of feedback might you give as a test pilot? Oh, you know. Too slow. Yeah. <laughs> Too slow. Oh, thanks, <laughs> yeah. Jeff. It, de- <laughs> it, it would depend on, um, you know, what you were testing, whether mm-hmm. it was a new aircraft system, new okay. engines. Uh. The flying qualities of the airplane. I, the uh, worked on some. The major programs I worked on was I worked on this system that kind of overlaid a digital flight control system over the analog system of the F-14. So you would, you know, go out and fly these test points and put control inputs in, and then see how the airplane responded. Some of your some of it is a a. a, a Subjective evaluation, yeah, where yeah, it's your opinion. Yeah, Others yeah, objective right. when they look at the data. Mm-hmm. That's great. <laughs> All right. So then, so we've we've kind of caught up to the point where yeah. you're a test pilot now. Is this the point within your life and career where you start where you apply to become an astronaut? Yeah, I almost didn't because um, <laughs> I didn't have a master's degree. I thought that was a requirement. I didn't have. Um, I had some flying experience. I had some, but I was young. I was a lieutenant in the Navy. I'm mm-hmm. 31 years old when I, probably maybe even 30 when I filled out the application. But the guy I was sharing an office with was working on his application. I asked him what he was doing. He says, astronaut application. I was like, <laughs> when is that due? And he's like, eh, in a few days. And I thought, you know, I'm going to fill out the like simplest thing I could and sent it in and never thinking I'd hear back. Right. My brother got an interview like a couple months before I did. And um, then somehow miraculously they called me and we both got picked maybe due to a clerical error or something. <laughs> I a was, reluctant astronaut. That was probably <laughs> the clerical error. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then, then what happens? So you get picked. And you and your brother picked at the same time. Does that mean that you then entered into a training program together? Yeah, we were uh, part of uh, two of 44 people in the biggest astronaut class ever. There was mm-hmm. 35 Americans, nine international astronauts oh, from wow. different countries, um, Europe, and, Japan, Canada. And what year now would that be? 1996. 96. Yeah. Okay. So can you put that in perspective for us a little bit? Like, where was the space program at that point in 1996? There was uh, no International Space Station. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were flying the, the space shuttle on, you know, science missions, satellite deploy missions, uh, repair missions for Hubble, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we were gearing up for the construction of the International Space Station. We also had some flights to the uh, Mir Space mm-hmm. Station, mm-hmm. <clears throat> kind of in uh, in preparation for uh, building this International Space Station later. So this first component of the space station didn't launch until 1998, and uh, we show up there in 1996 and start astronaut school <laughs> and a couple of years of training, and then later yeah. I got assigned my first flight. And so you said that was the largest class to date. Uh, why do you think that was? Why uh, Was that because of a need or a desire or both? Um, I... I you know, I've been on the selection board for astronauts before in uh, one time, and the numbers that you pick are – it's more of like – almost like an HR decision you have no insight into. But I think probably at that time we picked that many because we were flying the space shuttle and we thought we were gearing up very quickly to launch the mm-hmm. components – the first components of the space station. So we'd have to have – you know, shuttle crews and station crews, and at the time they thought they would have more people on the space station, more U.S. crew members. So there was – when the space shuttle was flying, there was a need for a lot of people sure. because if you fly, you know, 10 flights a year, seven crew members, yeah. 70 oh. people a year you need just for the current year of flights. Yeah. So we just were kind of staffing up for that, I think. That's yeah. great. And what what are some of the ways that your Navy training prepared you for – astronaut school? And then what are some of the new things that become a part of the astronaut training that that maybe you hadn't been as exposed to? So there's a lot of uh, parallels, I think, Mm -hmm. um, between flying a military airplane and flying the space shuttle, certainly. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, that's why they have military test pilots as the pilot and the commander of the the space shuttle, because Mm -hmm. it's a flight test vehicle. So uh, the space shuttle flew uh, 140, approximately 140 times. I probably should know the exact number. (laughs) But um, an airplane that's flown 140 flights uh, total is in the very early stages Mm -hmm. of its development. So the skills um, required to fly the space shuttle are somewhat similar to the skills of a of a test pilot. You mm-hmm. know, being able to, uh, you know, having the, f- you know, the hands on flying ability, mm-hmm. but also the, you know, skills to, uh, you know, make judgments on the performance of the vehicle. Even on my flight, in my, as the pilot and commander, we're we're still doing, getting test points on the space shuttle, even though the first flight was in, nineteen eighty one or. Whatever right. it was, yeah, mm-hmm. um, and I flew f- my first flight in nine in ninety nine. So, um, a lot of parallels between those two. And what was new? What was different? Um, well, one thing that was new was the uh, diversity in the people you work with. Because yeah. I came from this military background that was all in my squadron, you know, ninety percent white males, right. and uh, you get to NASA and you have. Um, more diversity in ethnicity and background, you know, working with scientists, people with more of a science background, engineering, people from other countries. Mm -hmm. That was, uh, you know, the one clear, very obvious difference. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you give us a sense, like, the the different roles on a space shuttle crew? Um, You've talked about the pilot and the the commander. What are some of the other roles that that your teammates would fill? 
On the space shuttle, there are basically three different general positions. There's okay. the commander who's really the pilot, uh, but he's also the mission commander, meaning that on an airplane, you have the pilot and the co-pilot. Mm-hmm. In the space program, you have the commander and the pilot, and that comes from the early days in the space program, the Mercury, Gem- not the Mercury guys, because there's only one guy on the vehicle, but Gemini and, and Apollo, where these guys come from a military flight test background. They were always the one guy in the airplane, or they're always the guy in charge, and they weren't going to be anyone's co-pilot. Mm-hmm. So they didn't like that title. So they had commander, pilot. There were even <laughs> there were even uh, crew members on Apollo missions that had no uh, lunar module. Mm-hmm. That they their title was the lunar module pilot because mm-hmm. they didn't want to be called a co-pilot of, of something. Um, so there's that role, right. the commander, and then there's, there's the pilot of the space shuttle, which is really the co-pilot, right. and who gets to fly a little bit, a little tiny bit, at the discretion of the commander, and okay. uh, you know he backs up the commander and is really is a very critical role because he's responsible for a lot of the very the, the systems that can get mm-hmm. you in trouble uh, very quickly if you don't. Uh, operate them correctly right main engines auxiliary power units electrical system uh so there are those two roles and then there are mis- the mission specialists yeah. and so those are the scientists the engineers the other folks from the military that might not have a flight test background mm-hmm. um as a uh, as a pilot and those roles are there were people that were kind of more in a scientist category others that were more operators that would do spacewalks mm-hmm robotic operators so you know but basically generally three different positions right. and and how many mission specialists would be on a, a typical shuttle it would vary but you know generally we would have the most would be seven people which yeah. was probably you know most of the time you'd have seven sometimes you'd have you'd have less because of the weight of the payload right. and you you know an extra person uh, doesn't yeah. always it's not just about the weight of them. It's also about the weight of everything that right. it takes to fly the extra person. Sometimes they, sometimes they didn't have enough margin. Right. They, w- they would be much more likely to take you in than, than me is what I'm hearing. Well, that actually leads me to my next question. All right. They could take two of her. <laughs> yeah. right. That's right. Two of her or one of you. <laughs> okay. And trust me, she stacks up better than me just one to one. I was going to say it takes two of me to make one of you, Jeff. <laughs> so is it the case that – Yeah, that's that... exactly what I meant. I didn't mean what you said. I meant what she said. Right. <laughs> so is it the case that the commander – the pilot and the mission specialist, do they all have a similar baseline of training, regardless of their background? Not exactly. I mean, you might do simulators together, but That's what I was wondering, yeah. Yeah. um, So you might be in the space shuttle simulator together, but the pilot and the commander are, you know, trained at a a higher level because they have to actually operate the systems versus the guys that are sitting behind you that are kind of just monitoring what you're doing and helping out. Right. Mm -hmm. We would fly the shuttle training airplane to practice landing the space shuttle, Uh, which, you know, if you're not one of the two guys sitting in the front, you wouldn't do. You might not be, you know, we would fly the T-38 in the front seat, so... But likewise, you know, they would mm-hmm. do spacewalk training and mm-hmm. robotics training that as a pilot or commander of the uh, shuttle, you wouldn't you would do. do. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's differences. And how about, and I appreciate your comment about uh, the naming 
and the symbolism of the name commander and pilot. Uh, and you were starting to talk a little bit about what differentiates their roles and the pilot, of course, having you know critical role, having to really understand the systems. So is the commander's role then more of a strategic role? Absolutely. Okay. You're, so you, it, it's really two things. Mm-hmm. You're the guy flying the with your hands on the controls, um, whether it's rendezvousing with the space station or a satellite or landing the space shuttle. Um, you know, in powered flight, you would, in an emergency, you could fly it manually. But you're the person leading the team, mm-hmm. yeah. essentially. You know, right. you're, you're responsible for, you know, the execution of the mission, meeting the mission objectives, safety of flight, which is a huge, huge. role. Mm-hmm. And in the shuttle program, and even in the space station, you're kind of working as, uh, you know, almost in a level, uh, uh, partnership with the flight director. Mm-hmm. You know, in some cases, the flight director has more authority than you do in certain decision making. Except, you know, if it comes to like real time uh, safety of flight, then it's the the crew commander. But um, mm-hmm. you know, depending on the decision, the the flight director sometimes has more authority. And even the the managers in the in the shuttle program or space station program mm-hmm. have a lot of say. But it's definitely a, a you know, a partnership that is pretty level. And how about the selection process? How What goes into the decision-making of who is commander and who's pilot? Well, the commander always was previously the pilot. Uh, okay. At least in the in the shuttle days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there were cases in uh, Gemini that, you know, because the, there wasn't a whole lot of spaceflight experience right. at the time, mm-hmm. so they just had to, okay, you know, you two guys, you're the commander and you're okay. the pilot, and the pilot probably didn't feel the greatest about that was but was probably uh you know felt privileged to just have the opportunity to fly mm-hmm. in space like I think we we all do but how mm-hmm. do they um you know put the crew together you know yeah. it's uh it varies at times I think it depends on who the chief of the astronaut office was uh I had when I was the commander of the space shuttle I had a little bit in, of involvement mm-hmm. and say on who my fellow crew members were but mm-hmm. You know, sometimes that's not the case. Oh, that's great. Well, you really anticipated my question about that because it would seem, especially in tight quarters and for long periods of time, that how that group gets together and gets along would be really important. Um, yeah, uh, it's important, even more so on the space station. station. Unfortunately, um, we did not always put as much uh, – we didn't weigh that as much on the space station for for reasons that um, you know because it's this international program mm-hmm. and the international partners are like well that guy is flying then and even though it might not be the best crew makeup um, it, it, was it was what it was pitch. yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. now fortunately you know the vetting process is pretty good for astronauts and cosmonauts <laughs> and. You know, for the most part, you know, crews in space have, have you know, performed pretty well together because I think it's – you get these you know, pretty high-performing individuals and that are, you know, very well vetted. This is Jeff Glide. I'm here with Ann Greenhall, and you're listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Um, stay with us. We'll be right back. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun, and I say, 
All right. Welcome back. This is Leadership in Action. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, joined here in the studio by my colleague, Ann Greenhall. And we are delighted to have Scott Kelly uh, here with us in the studio, author of the book, Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. So uh, I want to ask you a reflective question um, before we move to the, the space station <laughs> here. Um, and, and that would be, as you look back uh, you know, over the shuttle crews that you were a part of, is there anything about how to either reach high performance or sustain high performance within a team um, that you learn from those experiences, where if, if you're putting a team together tomorrow, you'd want to have this kind of quality to it or this set of relationships? That's a tough question. You know, um, for me, you know, I never really put together – I had some influence over mm-hmm. my shuttle crew, but I didn't really give a whole lot of thought to, like, you know, what type of people, um, you know, were – or mm-hmm. we're putting together um, in this situation, like I said, the folks are pretty good. They're very well vetted, mm-hmm. generally well experienced. But you definitely want a mix of experience. So you need, you know, p- people that have no experience mm-hmm. um, in space uh, because we need to build experience because people yeah, are right. always constantly moving out <clears throat> the top, and you yeah. need to mm-hmm. get people in into the. Um, into the uh, into the bottom of the ranks with experience to fill those uh, you know leadership positions later. So yeah. that's certainly uh, certainly part of it. There's uh, an eye towards that building capacity for the organization for the future. Oh, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. That's very uh, very important, and that's uh, you know generally why people would you know fly in space for you know a few times and then go do something else. I think part of the you know the mandate of NASA was to you know, balance experience with flying as many mm-hmm. people into space as they can to, mm-hmm. you know, get, kind of have a broad range of, of people with different backgrounds. But, you know, it, I think, you know, having people that would fill, you know, their particular role and do it well, um, you know, being able to function in that, you know, very high stress, mm-hmm. high, you know, demanding mm-hmm. uh, environment, um Tough question, though. Mm-hmm. And one that, to be honest with you, I have not really ever given much thought or at, been asked before, believe it or not. <laughs> That's Fan- good, Jeff. Glad to have me. you on Leadership <laughs> yeah, in Action. Right. Fantastic. I'm- I didn't even know the name of this show before I walked in here. <laughs> <laughs> no. The thing that's yeah. important is it's in and action are two different <laughs> exactly. words. Exactly. <laughs> not in action. <laughs> so, so, yeah. And maybe that was my ADD. I didn't. Or maybe it was the fact that. Amico and I here just got <laughs> off the uh, airplane from Amsterdam yesterday oh, afternoon. <laughs> okay. Went home and then flew up here, but we were in, in Europe for a whole week, uh, a blur oh. of Madrid. Uh, then we went to uh, Copenhagen and oh, Paris nice. and Amsterdam on the book promotion. The book, yeah. so, oh, that's great. Yeah. I, and well, then, and it could also be, I mean, our listeners can't see this, but you're looking out a window and there are squirrels out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, there are definitely exactly. squirrels outside. Yeah. So yeah. And they Absolutely. might be distracting you. <laughs> All right. How about, may I ask one uh, meditative question before we get to the space station? Okay. So in the process of going from test pilot and then commander, what did you learn about your own leadership? Um, I think... 
You know, it's I, I, and I think people have told me this, so it's not necessarily I've I've come up with this myself. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, folks have commented um, a couple of things. One is, uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm a pretty fair person. Um, I'm uh, understanding that you know everyone's not the same. Everyone mm-hmm. does not have the skills um, of the other crew members of myself. Mm-hmm. In some cases, they can be better um, than me. Mm-hmm. I think it's important, you know, as a leader to recognize that you don't know everything. Mm -hmm. And at times there are people that you need to turn to for help and advice. Um, uh, I would often say, hey, what do you think about this? Because you know um, more about this than I Mm -hmm. do. And I say, okay, well, let's do that. Um, uh, I think the other thing that helped me, especially on the space station, is to understand um, that you can't do everything perfectly. Now, you would think that's counter that's kind of counterintuitive yeah. to flying in space. You yeah. would think, hey, that's such a risky environment that, you know, everything has to be yeah. done to this, like, you know, 100% capacity. The problem is you can't do that all the time. You know, when you have so much work to do and you're, you know, going – you know, full speed ahead, 12 hours a day, six days a week for 340 days, everything can't be perfect. The stuff that needs to be absolutely has to be. Right. Right. You know, and sometimes, you know, there's a saying, better is the enemy of good enough. Uh Mm -hmm. And maybe for me, it was maybe a little bit of that ADD. It was Mm kind of helpful in that it was easy for me to say that the, uh, the stuff that didn't have to be perfect, I could just forget about that mm-hmm. um and then the other thing to it i think that helped me especially on the space station is to understand that i don't have the same perspective as as um the folks on the ground mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the the people that you are working for the control center mm-hmm. and um i think often crew members can get kind of wrapped up in this idea that um they know better because they're there uh, the things are a waste of their time. Um, and the example I would always use mm-hmm. at NASA with my fellow crew members is I'd say, you know, if if the guys in mission control want you to do something and it seems like it doesn't make sense and it's it's hard for us, keep in mind that maybe doing it our way might require a meeting with 100 people that to to mm-hmm. to do what we want to do Versus us maybe wasting a little bit of time. Um, and it's the, the station's program to make that decision whether what's, – what's the priority here? Is it the crew member's time or is it the fact that you gotta, they have to spend the yeah. weekend in meetings, uh, all this – you know, all these man hours yeah. to, to do it our way mm-hmm. and to be able to just say, okay, and just let it go. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people have a hard time doing that. Yeah, the way you describe it, uh, you make me think of the way a CEO might refer back to his or her board of directors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and just uh, say, hey, I think it should be like this. Mm-hmm. This is my perspective. Mm-hmm. But what are your priorities? Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what matters more maybe – I mean, what's more important, the bottom line, our, uh, our image um, – or is it, you know, executing uh, what you're trying to do perfectly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
It's great. You're listening to Leadership in Action. I'm Jeff Klein here with Anne Greenhall, and our guest this hour is Scott Kelly, author of the book Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. Okay, so so, <laughs> so help us if you can, because I, you know, many of us, or at least I'll speak for myself, I feel like I have a, a good conception of the space shuttle. Um, watched it, you know, my whole life taking off and and landing. Uh, but the the space station is a little harder to kind of wrap your your head around. So, I mean, in the I don't have to close my eyes because it's radio. But <laughs> how would we how would we picture the space station? What 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 are the defining de- qualities? So it's a million pounds Ooh. in flying around the Earth at 17,500 miles an hour. If you laid it on the ground, it'd be the size of a football field. Okay. Now, a lot of that is the giant solar arrays, these, you know, four or eight, it depends on how you count them, but mm-hmm. eight arrays that are on this long truss. And then it has these modules that generally are, you know, all in line longitudinally with some uh, you know, sticking out the sides. Uh, mm-hmm. Some Russian ones stick out the tops. Um, <laughs> each module is kind of like a room. Okay, um, you might describe it. So, and the volume is—it's pretty big. Um, you know, maybe the volume of a you know really big house, a five-bedroom house. All right, it's got a lot of stuff in it. It's half. You know. It's scientific laboratory, but it's uh, you know has all these systems that you know help keep you alive, life support systems. Because there's no gravity, or well, there's gravity, but it's microgravity because we're flying around the Earth. You know, people say you know they talk about zero gravity. There's no such thing. You know, because if you look at the gravity equation, no matter you know how far you are away from any mass, there's still some some gravity. gravity. And that's not why we're floating. Reminding me of this calculus test. (laughs) We're floating in the space station and space shuttle, really, because we're falling around the Earth. Yeah, that's right. You're falling. Falling together. You're just Mm -hmm. falling so fast, you're falling over the edge. Edge, yeah. Yeah. But it's it's got a U.S. side Mm -hmm. and a Russian side. Oh, I didn't know Um, that. uh, Let me backtrack. I was saying about the no gravity thing. So because of that, microgravity... You know, the walls, the ceiling, the floor has stuff all over it, mm-hmm. um, whether it's uh, computers or uh, science experiments, cables. Um, if you had OCD, it would be a really tough place to live, I think, because it's, you know, it, it could seem kind of messy, Yeah, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but there's a U.S. side and a Russian side. The U.S. have the European modules. Um, there's a Columbus European science module. There's Japanese, a couple of Japanese modules. The Russian side's a little bit different, a little smaller, a um, little less sophisticated, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, you know, they're definitely challenged by their budget, and they have do a very good job in, you know, operating um, with a lot less money. So to the Russian space program, often, um, you know, if something works, they don't try to make it better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So some of their stuff seems a little bit dated. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a magical place. Yeah. It's like the coolest place ever, now, actually. Here's a simple question. I'm going to ask the really naive question. How do we get that space station up into space? Well, um, a lot of it came up in the space shuttle. Okay. 
And then some of it came up. Um, uh, the Russians launched their parts on a Russian, two different Russian rockets, uh, the uh, Progress and the Soyuz. Mm-hmm. Um, and then assembled. That's the tricky part. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. side was done with a lot of spacewalks uh, by and a lot of robotic operations. It's really been a... Uh, you know, engineering miracle Absolutely. to build that in space. I think cool. the hardest thing we have ever done, harder than going to the moon. Wow. All right. <laughs> and how many people are living in the big house? Generally six. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. See, so everybody the almost has house. their own bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> you have a little um, crew quarters, um, okay. which is the size of like an old phone booth. I can't really use that analogy too much with kids because right. I don't know what a phone booth is so sometimes I use a coffin <laughs> oh, <great. laughs> that's oh funny gosh. though the big house I, I wish I would have thought of that when I was in space that would have been a funny thing to call it um, and so you have crew quarters and then are you typically working in similar areas generally the US and the uh, Europe all the crew members that are not from Russia mm-hmm. generally work most of the time on the U.S. side of the space station. So, and they call it the U.S. operational segment. It includes the uh, other, you know, Japanese and European sure. modules. So we generally would spend most of our day working on the U.S. side and the Russians on the Russian side. But that's not because it's like, you know, the Berlin Wall or anything. <laughs> yeah. It's just mm-hmm. really a, just a function of the priorities of the individual programs. One of the Russian guys actually sleeps on the U.S. side because mm-hmm. we have four crew quarters. They have two. But generally, there's six people up there. My last flight, I was there for about six weeks with just me and two Russian guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I'd spend my day on this huge U.S. side of the space station mm. all by myself, mm. which is actually in some ways is is uh, kind of peaceful. Yeah. You know, I liked yeah. having other people there yeah. with me. Yeah. But I also liked being there by myself, actually, because it's nice and quiet and, you know, everything was exactly like I wanted it. If something was, like, in the wrong place, it's because I put it there. (laughs) (laughs) Now, are you you on 24-hour shifts so that um, – or overlapping shifts personnel-wise? No, we we go to sleep at, you know, generally the same time. You do. Okay, got it. Yeah. On rare occasions, you would, like, if there was a docking of a – mostly a Russian vehicle, they might shift their sleep a little bit um, Mm -hmm. and you'd be on a little different, sort of a different Mm -hmm. shift, but that was very, very rare. So when you're asleep, even when you're awake, the control center in Houston plays an enormous role in monitoring the systems and, you know, uh, taking care. They can actually send commands to the different systems. They can Mm -hmm. respond to certain malfunctions. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you wake up in the morning and you realize that the, uh, you know, the engine's fired to avoid some orbital debris and you didn't even know about it because oh, wow. you were asleep. Okay. And what's that experience like? Which? Well, just even just even sleeping. Well, you know, people might – I think there's a, um, a misconception that mm-hmm. sleeping in space would be like the most comfortable sleep ever, Right. In some, there are some things about it that are nice. Like you know, I have 
shoulder pain. And mm-hmm. if I sleep on my arm the wrong way, my shoulder hurts and it wakes me up. Well, you don't have that because, mm-hmm. you know, you don't weigh anything. So you <laughs> can't sleep. Your arms are just floating in front of you. Um, but there are other reasons mm-hmm. that make sleeping in space more challenging. Yeah. Um, one being is, and I think the main one, is that when we are living on Earth, mm-hmm. during the day, we're opposing gravity. When you're sitting, you're just sitting here, you're, you know, mm-hmm. holding your, your head up. That takes effort. You don't mm-hmm. know it, but it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're walking around. That takes mm-hmm. energy. In space, you're really not expending any energy. You're, uh-huh. Whether you're working on the computer or doing an experiment or, you know, basically whatever you're doing except when you're exercising – it's the same level of effort yeah. of when you're mm-hmm. trying to go to sleep. On Earth, you go home, you sit on the couch, you're more comfortable. You lie in a bed, you're more comfortable. Mm-hmm. In space, when it's time to go to sleep, you get in your sleeping bag and you close your eyes. You're no, no more comfortable than when you were you know, eating mm-hmm. dinner or watching TV mm-hmm. or doing your work throughout mm-hmm. the day. So that makes it harder for me yeah. to go to sleep. Yeah. And I think other people um, – sometimes you see uh, – these flashes of light in your field of view when with your eyes closed is cosmic radiation yeah, hitting your Yeah, I was retina. wondering about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that can be a little bit of a distraction. Especially, <laughs> I should especially, say. <laughs> especially when you realize that cosmic ray just went through your brain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what did that do? Yeah, right? exactly, right? <laughs> so there are those, uh, you know, it's loud. It can be, you know, ah, the temperature. I hadn't thought about and, that, loud. Oh, it's, yeah, it's. Not it's not loud like an airplane, like yeah. an airliner loud, but right. it's probably you know half of what an airliner is, which over the course oh, of wow. a year can be very you know or a long period of time can be kind of fatiguing. Okay, mm-hmm. and that doesn't become like white noise. No, you, you yeah. you're still you're really aware, and and it doesn't have a pattern or a rhythm to it. It varies, mm-hmm. you know, depending on where you are. Certain places are louder than others. If someone's running on the treadmill, it's incredibly loud. I mean, so so much so that you can't even, like, have a conversation near by the treadmill. Um, one of the first things I said to Misha, Mikhail Kornienko, my guy, I was Russian uh, colleague I was going to be there with for a whole year, as soon as we got to space and we lifted our helmet and I'm listening to the noise in the soyuz, I say, you know, Misha, our our lives without noise for the next year has ceased to exist, you know. And I had this realization, and I was like, "Oh no," because it's you know it's noise everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. Whoa. <laughs> so Scott, we only have a, a minute or two left here. Amazingly, uh, and you know the the new book you called it endurance, right? And obviously there are kind of multiple levels of endurance, and, mm-hmm. and we've we've hit on many of those as as we've been talking. Um, but but I want to ask you kind of a broad, open-ended question, and that is, w- what have you learned about endurance through the year that you spend in space, the the records that you've set, the previous missions? Um, what can you tell our listeners about how to build endurance? Yeah, so I think you know that title for me has in the book basically has three meanings. Mm-hmm. Um, one is you know I spent three hundred forty days in space, and that yep. was yeah. l- longer for any American, and. Uh, and I think it's about you know in that case, for, for that 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 meaning of of that word for me was about like pacing myself. Mm-hmm. I was lucky, um, you know, I had a previous flight of 159 days, so I knew for me to get to the end of this, mm-hmm. I have to pace myself, yeah. balance my work with rest, 
and my goal was to get to the end with as much energy and enthusiasm as oh, I had great, at the beginning. Great. I wanted my two flight directors. They broke the flight up the year in with four different, um, three different flight directors, mm-hmm. um, and I wanted the one at the beginning to to check with the one at the end and basically have have them say that was the same guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think I achieved that. Um, the other one, the other meaning for me was the this idea that uh, you know you don't have to be the best at something, um, uh, but you know hard work, perseverance, um, never uh, giving up on yourself is very important to achieve uh, your goals. And um, you know the other one was just about this kid. You know, this kid that the other meaning was, you know, more of this kind of like childhood kind of fantasy that, uh, that you know, a kid with, um, you know, can have these like long term, this long term dream and, uh, you know, just never give up kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, for me, I was lucky and, uh, you know, it's been a real privilege to be able to mm-hmm. achieve and get to do what I got to do. Mm. Well, Scott, we want to thank you for joining us today. Scott Kelly, author of the book Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. We want to thank you both for your service to the country as well as to humanity. Uh, (laughs) And we can't wait to see what the next chapter is. That's right. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, Yeah, thanks, (laughs) thanks uh, thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. So to our listeners, thank you tonight so much for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can send us an email at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. Once again, we want to offer a special thank you to our guest, Scott Kelly. And I'd also like to thank our producer, our program director, Patty Hall, as well as our sound engineer, Tatiana. This is Jeff Klein. And Ann Greenhall, and you're listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.